welcome to the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. Today we have with us Ralph Sorensen, also known as Bud. Hi, Bud. Hello, Aaron. Great to see you today. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you. So, Bud, Mr. Sorensen, has served as president of Babson College, as the chairman, president, and CEO of Barry Wright Corporation, as the dean of the School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder, professor at Harvard Business School, co-founder of the Asian Institute of Management, and has served on many public and private boards, including Whole Foods, Polaroid, Hutton Mifflin, among many others. And uh, Bud, we've been friends for a number of years, and certainly your resume, your CV is remarkable. I know you as a friend uh, and have lived a couple blocks away, and I'm so delighted that we have the opportunity to share with our audience today that you've written a book uh, called An Entrepreneurial Journey Through Life. And let me just begin by asking, Bud, what, what prompted you to write this book? Well, first of all, let me thank you for that kind invita- uh, introduction. Uh, it's quite clear I have a great future behind me now, <laughs> but uh, I just got to a stage in my life where uh, in the last chapter of this book is called The Pleasures of Longevity, and what one does, I suppose, uh, when one gets into one's 80, 80s, uh, kind of think about what your life has been all about, and uh, it just... Uh, was fun for me to write this uh, book, uh, fun for me to relive, relive the good parts, uh, to suffer again through the mm. bad parts and try to skip over the boring parts. <laughs> well, I, I am struck that the subtitle of the book, Learning, Loving, and Laughing, really for me uh, resonates with uh, knowing you as a friend and I know that you are passionate about learning. I absolutely delight in how much you share in the book about love and your love for your family, your wife in particular, your romance with her, and of course laughing. And uh, it seems to me you're a great practitioner of all three of these. Well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I've been blessed uh, to, for the most part, uh, have have lived a, a wonderful life, and uh, it's not all been uh, sweetness and light, but it's it's been wonderful to live at, at this time, uh, how I have lived and uh, where I've lived. I've uh, I've been a lucky man. Hmm. What well, I'm struck that uh, you've also been a mentor and advisor to so many folks in business, so many folks doing work for environmental conservation. And we'll be diving into some of the topics that you uh, speak to in the different chapters of the book. But one of the great passions that you focused on through much of your career is in the realm of education. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Bud, share with our audience, if you would, what 
what is education and why, why does education even matter? I've been giving a lot of thought to that whole concept of, of education. I'm struck by the fact that we have, uh, in the United States and really in the world at large, we've had this idea that education is, uh, formal education is something that starts in preschool or kindergarten and ends with a degree. Uh, it could be a high school degree, it could be a um, college degree of some sort, even an advanced degree, and then uh, that ends our formal education. Uh, and I think we are living at a time when we've got to change that concept of education. We have to become lifelong learners. Um, we, if, if one thinks about it, uh, the world we're living in today is changing more rapidly than it has ever been the case in the past, uh, particularly with the advent of the whole STEM or STEAM area, science, technology, uh, engineering, uh, the arts, and mathematics. And uh, it's just knowledge is exploding exponentially yeah. every two years we're generating an amount of information equivalent to all of the information generated since uh, the beginning of, of recorded uh, information. And um, it's Moore's Law applied just to education. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. And how do we as humans uh, keep up with all of that? Mm. And so I have a, a chapter in, in, in this book uh, about the future of higher education in particular, mm -hmm. which I think mm -hmm. is going perhaps to be the next major target of uh, disruptive technology. And I'd be happy to talk a little bit more about that if you'd be interested. I think it's so important. And, you know, many of us probably have differing views on education and perhaps even different experiences with our own education, the formal and the informal end. But in, in the chapter, The Future of Higher Education, you are laying out a, a very informed view on where education may be going even in the next number of years. And I think it, it hits on some key themes, some important themes that are transforming our society in general, not just in the realm of formal education, things like artificial intelligence, for example. And so, yes, if you, if you would maybe walk us through some of those, those themes that you're speaking to, I think it's a really important set of topics. Well, one of those themes is uh, that developed initially by Clayton Christensen, a professor at the Harvard Business School, who talks about the concept of uh, disruptive technology or disruptive innovation. And in this book, I argue that higher education is probably going to be the next major target of uh, disruptive uh, technology. Uh, Professor Christensen talks about the reason for that uh, being the explosion of, of that STEM area that I talked about in artificial intelligence. And I think that, which has led to the development of what are called MOOCs, Massively Online Open Classrooms, which is online uh, learning. And um, 
Professor Christensen postulates that in the in the 2020s, that half of all colleges and universities will um, either go out of business or be merged or be acquired. Uh, I think that is possible that that could take place, but I think that there are other reasons beyond just technology that higher education is riding for a fall. I remember you mentioning in the chapter the, the cost alone is presenting structural and systemic challenges. And I know many of my friends and peers are uh, absolutely uh, burdened by incredible student loan debt as a result of their higher education pursuits. We're seeing this emerging throughout the system. Well, that certainly has been the case. And for years and years, uh, the cost of educa higher education has been exploding. Uh, at an exponential way, rate far beyond uh, what's happened in the world of inflation. Uh, but there, so there's that factor, and that has led to uh, students either not going to uh, college or university. By the way, it's interesting that, that uh, between 19, uh, tw uh, 2012 and 2017, uh, the, the uh, number of students enrolled in colleges and universities has dropped from about 19 million, a uh, little over 19 million, down to a little over 17 million. Mm -hmm. So that trend is already uh, taking place. And um, part of that is the financing of it, the, the incredible debt, which has caused some uh, young people not to go to college at all some people to end up taking five or six years and and uh, not even perhaps finishing uh, university or if they do uh, ending up with a, a bucket of, of uh, debt that's very hard for them to pay off so that's one factor second factor is um, the uh, fact that that uh, colleges and universities are probably make the most uh, inefficient use of their physical facilities of, of any industry, and it is an industry yeah. uh, in existence. Uh, if you think about most colleges and universities uh, have a summer recess, uh, and then they have breaks during the, the course of the year, and their classrooms typically are used only six or seven hours a day for eight for nine months a year, and that goes ditto for the housing facilities and dining facilities. Uh, administrative costs at colleges and universities are growing much faster than faculty mm -hmm. costs. Uh, they, uh, as a matter of fact, are in, um, in uh, public institutions growing twice as fast as academic costs, uh, mm -hmm. and at uh, at uh, uh, private institutions two and a half times. Yeah. Um, and then third is the rigidity built into the higher education system by the concept of tenure. Mm -hmm. Tenure was a concept that was developed in 1915 when Harvard and Columbia and the University of Chicago also uh, all uh, adopted tenure and the original idea was to make sure that uh, professors had freedom of speech yeah. 
that they could uh, teach controversial ideas without fear of being fired. Mm. Uh, it also uh, led to sinecure, because once you have tenure as a professor, you cannot be fired. And uh, those two things have had unintended uh, consequences. First, today we have other uh, protections of uh, legal protections of freedom of speech, and mm -hmm. really that originally caused the uh, original reason for tenure is is no longer uh, so valid. And then the other thing with the idea of uh, not being able to be fired has led to many uh, uh, professors ending up teaching beyond their. Uh, uh, their their use date <laughs> and to some uh, rigidities, so that's another uh, another factor, which means that much of the teaching today is done by uh, teaching assistants or instructors or adjunct professors, many of whom are gifted, but not all of them. PhD programs typically focus <coughs> for tenure track professors on uh, helping. Uh, helping uh, teachers learn how to do research. Right. Professors do research. And their first seven years, tenure-track professors, uh, are devoted uh, to um, uh, publish or perish. Mm -hmm. uh, publish in academically refereed journals. And when it comes time to that they have their teach, they have their research opportunities, and they have their teaching burden, right. and um, as a, a result, um, their their focus is is on research oriented orientation, and when it comes time to being granted itself, uh, to granted tenure, the um, uh, tenure committees typically are putting their major emphasis on whether there are uh, gifted researchers as opposed to gif gifted teachers. So that's another reason. The third reason is that we have this, have had this concept of uh, what professors do, uh, they're called the sage on the stage, uh, or else... Uh, uh, the talking the head phenomenon, yeah. <laughs> God, the professor, who stands in the front of the room yep. and gives a lecture and imparts information, very often the half-life of which is very short, right. to a group of students who are heads down taking notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the half-life of that information in today's world tends to be very short. And it ignores the fact that, in my view, learning, learning is a very active, not a passive mm -hmm. activity. Yep. And that, uh, it, it, that uh, it's much more learning by doing, which I think we have to get into that uh, mode much more uh, going forward. So all of these are reasons why I think higher education is uh, is endangered. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line for me is that, um, as I start out to begin with, uh, learning has to be a lifelong uh, process. I argue in this book that all of us as human beings 
in the future generations should devote at least a month of their year, mm. uh, uh, of every year, to um, uh, quote formally or informally uh, learning to try to keep up with this uh, so rapidly evolving world in which we live. Yeah, yeah, and for our friends and family who are working full time, it doesn't necessarily mean taking a month off, right? This is the kind of thing where in the evening throughout the course of the year, one could pursue one's lifelong learning uh, interests and in the course of the year eventually uh, get to what is a month's worth of focused education. Absolutely. And the, the, the learning process should not only be in the STEM areas, right. but also in uh, the whole world of liberal arts, mm. humanities, history, and that sort of thing, because those concepts and ideas are ever-evolving as well. It strikes me, you know, this, of course, being the Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series, our primary focus is around uh, issues related to those uh, incredibly important imperatives of our time, stewardship and sustainability. And one of the things I am struck by is so many of our friends and peers are technical experts in, in various uh, domains within STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, and clearly there's so much that we are developing in those arenas to help deal with stewardship and sustainability issues. However, there's so much more that is dealt with in the humanities and literature and philosophy and in our understanding of history that I believe gives us the compass we need in, in, in determining how we utilize technology, etc. And, and so I'm just curious, but if when thinking about stewardship and sustainability in the context of education, what do you believe are among the most important things, institutions, whether formal or not, might impart with folks? Yeah. Well, let me begin first uh, saying, Aaron, uh, I've so admired what you've been doing with your the why on earth uh, concept. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the sort of thing that we're doing right here this afternoon that I'm talking about. Yep. Hopefully, if anybody out there in the audience uh, is, is uh, listening in or, or watching, that th this is part of the learning process, yes. and I so I so admire what you're doing. I think that in terms of uh, colleges and universities uh, that are being threatened mm. by the traditional concept that they are pursuing, uh, that there are also great opportunities for those institutions to do the non-degree kinds of, of, of programs mm. that, um, that uh, are so important uh, for lifelong learning. Uh, and I think that there, in addition, obviously, to, to colleges and universities and formal educational institutions, just this whole, the advent of, of, of these things. Right and of uh, laptops and so forth and television, uh, they're, all, they're all sources of potential mm. learning. But I think it's important for us to keep an open mind. I, I'm a little bit concerned about the fact uh, how in today's world we're getting so um, uh, politically oriented mm. toward 
left or toward right and the, the, uh, that, that we're not we're lacking civil dialogue uh, going forward, which we so desperately need, and uh, particularly at this time in which we're living. Yeah, that's so important. That's so important. But, well, yeah, you know, perhaps our uh, podcast is a MOOC, a massively open online course in a, in a, well, in a it sense, is. right? It is. It is. Uh, I think it's interesting, uh, at a place like the Harvard Business School today, uh, in terms of revenue sources, their executive education, non-degree uh, programs, generate more income than their MBA program uh, generates. And uh, so it, it seems to me we have all this talent on these on these uh, campuses around with colleges and universities that uh, so many of them can, um, uh, can make that useful in non-degree programs, advanced management kinds of, of, of programs. And I would hope to see that would, would happen. But having said that, I think that there'll be uh, more partnerships for mm -hmm. going, yeah. uh, going into the future with uh, either corporations uh, partnering with uh, educational, not-for-profit not right. uh, educational institutions. But there are also sorts of uh, variations on that theme. But the important thing is that we as humans recognize that the old concept of formal education is yesteryear. Mm. We have to think of being lifelong learners. Love that. Love that, bud. Lifelong learners, indeed. Well, we've talked some about the, the learning and the education piece of the book. Um, I want to talk a little about the love part. And I was so struck, bud, when I began looking through the book to find these lovely photographs from over the years and decades, many with your wonderful wife, Charlotte. And early in the book, you're, you're sharing rather intimately some of your uh, romantic uh, adventure with, with Charlotte in chapter eight, a life-changing encounter uh, basically recounts uh, visiting Wellesley campus. You describe it being in bloom, beautiful language choices there, and you meet one Charlotte Ripley, and it changes your life. Uh, yeah, that was a memorable day, April 9th, 1958. Uh, and it was true, I was in my Sunday afternoon, I was in my dorm room and at the Harvard Business School and a couple of my pals came up and said, uh, we're going out to Wellesley College, uh, why don't you come on with us? Uh, and I said, oh gosh, I'm studying and I've got a lot to do. And they said, come on, don't be a martyr. You've got to come up for air. Don't so, be a martyr. <laughs> and so uh, the, I went with three of my classmates out to Wellesley, what they didn't tell me is they all had girlfriends at, at Wellesley. Okay. And um, they hopped out in the car, went scattering in different directions to visit their girlfriends, leaving me to wander around the campus. 
So I walked on into a quadrangle, uh, which was had had uh, dormitories uh, on all four sides, and it was a beautiful spring day. And I noticed that there was a girl sitting in an open window in the first floor of one of these dorms. And so I walked over, kind of wandered through the, the garden, and um, I struck up a conversation with her. It turned out she was the daughter of the Dutch ambassador to the US. And we were chatting away when another girl came up with a tennis racket, dressed in tennis clothes. And um, she asked the girl sitting in the window if she'd be kind enough to open up the door next to uh, her room so she could get in because it was locked. And in those 45 seconds, I looked at this new girl and I said, something went wow, kaboom. And um, I had some brilliant line, oh, do you play tennis? And you know, she was with her tennis racket. And she said, yes, do you? And I said, yes. And she said, do you want to play? And I said, yes. And so, uh, the first girl opened up the door, Charlotte went up and got a tennis racket, and we went off and played tennis that afternoon, and for 60 years we've been playing ever ever since. So uh, yeah. And it so happened then that um, uh, she was in her freshman uh, year, at that, uh, in her sophomore year at Wellesley, and uh, the next year, uh, I finished at the Harvard Business School, took a job over in Switzerland mm -hmm. at a school that the Harvard Business School had helped to set up called Imade. And uh, Charlotte, uh, who was an art history major, after her uh, sophomore year, she went to Italy uh, to study um, art history in, in Italy. And we were on the same boat going over there, and one thing led to another. We had dated in her junior year. And then, uh, basically, uh, she returned to Wellesley. I was that next year in Switzerland, and we had this exchange of letters, which, looking back on it, was truly extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And i just say one th thing for your audience. The art of letter writing seems to have disappeared yeah. in, in, in the world of, uh, of this. We, we yeah. all send, we send text messages, but we don't really write yeah. letters. Yeah. And um, I don't know whether this is, uh, would be of interesting interest to you. But Please, yes, let me, let's hear an example. This is wonderful, bud. Okay, here's one that I wrote. Um, Charlotte now is back at Wellesley College. I'm in Lausanne, Switzerland, and this was written on November 2nd, 1959. My dear Charlotte, I have a million things to tell you, the most important of which comes first. Take all the time you want, my darling, and don't say yes to marriage until and unless you feel completely ready. Mm. As you say, Za, it's so very, very hard to communicate all of one's feelings in letters. However, my darling, I think I know what you have been trying to tell me each time you write. I sense you feel a certain unreadiness for marriage. I sense, too, that you may be trying too hard to force yourself into feeling a mature kind of love that will permit you to accept freely and willingly the responsibilities of being a wife. Shar, as you know perhaps better than I, Love is not the kind of thing that one 
can force, rather it's something which simply bubbles spontaneously through a person. So, dear Za, please do not even try to set a date as to when you will no longer feel a hesitancy toward marriage. Not next spring, not summer, not even next year. Instead, let's just say that perhaps someday you will suddenly be able to say, Oh, bud, yes, 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 now I'm ready to be your wife. On that day, Shara, and only on that day, I shall be ready to be your husband. Then we will be able to give ourselves to one another completely and honestly and joyfully. And if for some reason that day never comes, Shar, I guess it will just be God's will. Something that <coughs> we will just have to accept and be thankful that we don't make a mistake. Just one more thing, Charlotte, in case you may be wondering, I feel for you right now, right at this moment, the deepest love that a man could ever feel for a woman. A deeper love than I've ever felt before and for this reason, I have an overwhelming faith that the future will one day see us together as husband and wife in a truly, in a truly meaningful marriage. Good night, my darling. Be so. Well, but yeah, <laughs> sixty years later, it's, that is it's, so it's, beautiful. it's funny. Uh, by the way, her nickname was Za. Z A. Yeah, that's why I say. Oh, uh, thank you for sharing that with us, bud. Your relationship and love for one another is such an inspiration for those of us who know you and uh, I'm sure for your children and grandchildren to be able to have these letters in the book what a gift what an amazing gift well it's it's interesting because uh, you were asking what, what, what inspired me to write this book and I say in it, at the beginning introduction, my dear wife Charlotte keeps asking for what audience you, are you writing these recollections. My reply is I'm writing them for you and for our kids and grandkids and their kids and grandkids so that future generations in the family will have a better understanding of their heritage. But perhaps a more honest answer would be that I'm writing them for myself, finding it fulfilling to have a second go at reliving my life enjoying the good parts, suffering once again through the bad parts, skimming quickly over the boring parts, trying my best to avoid obsessing about my personal shortcomings. So, uh, you know, I've been lucky. I've been learning, loving, laughing, and lucky. Well, that's beautiful. It's really beautiful, bud. Um, and I'll interject that there's so much in your experience, the way you're sharing your experience in this book, that is full of knowledge and wisdom that I hope many of our audience will experience for themselves. And I wanna, I wanna turn a little bit to some of those key messages and points that you share in here. Before doing so, I'm gonna just make a couple of quick mentions. This is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability Podcast Series. Today I'm uh, having the great uh, privilege and fun of speaking with Ralph Sorensen, also known as Bud. And I uh, want to let you know that this podcast series is made possible through the generous support of many sponsors. Uh, these include the Association of Waldorf Schools of North America, Earth Coast Productions, Equal Exchange, International Society of Sustainability Professionals, the Lidge Family Foundation, Patagonia, Purium, and Waylay Waters. 
these organizations are also sponsoring an upcoming three-day immersion called Massively Mobilizing Sustainability, Deep Leadership for the 21st Century, which the Why on Earth community is hosting at a private retreat center right outside of Boulder, Colorado, this May 17th through 19th. Encourage you to go to whyonearth.org to check all of that out. On the homepage, you'll see information about the summit. Please use the code COMMUNITY to get a special insider discount when you register. The summit is specifically geared for educators, executives, and entrepreneurs, and we're bringing together a host of authors, thought leaders, and others who are helping us identify and implement the keys to becoming stronger and more insightful leaders in our own right. So it's going to be an incredible experience. Hope to see you there. And uh, Bud, who knows, perhaps we'll even uh, be able to get a couple copies of your book there. We'll see. Um, but I want to ask, Bud, when folks are interested in getting their own copy of your book, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, it's easy. It's Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and you can just enter the name of the book, uh, An Entrepreneurial Journey Through Life, and uh, it should pop up, and you can you can get it and have it delivered in two or three days. Beautiful. Maybe some of you have heard of this uh, new company called Amazon. Yeah. So I want to ask, but you know, in the back here, and by the way, there's so much. I've got dog ears and and notes and marks throughout the book. Uh, I want to I want to go straight to this final chapter called. The Pleasures of Longevity, in part because there are a, a number, there's a list of, I would, I would call these uh, wise uh, advice for life. Um, we'll, we'll get to a few of those, but, but I was hoping before we get to the list, if, if you would maybe read from some of the passage uh, of The Pleasures of Longevity. Well, sure. Uh, this chapter called The Pleasures of Longevity begins with this. It hardly seems possible that I've already lived more than four score years. In my mind, it feels more like I'm still in middle age. What's surprising to me is how much I've enjoyed the most recent 20-plus years of my life. It's as though a great weight was lifted off me at age 60. About that time, I think I began subconsciously to say to myself, I've actually been there and done that. I have nothing to prove to the world or myself anymore. So now I can turn my curiosity and zest for life in new directions while continuing to pursue various professional activities of my own choosing. I can also begin to explore some of the more existential lives issues that confront us all in life. I can read more. I can spend more time with Charlotte and my kids and grandkids. We can travel freely. I can develop a deeper appreciation for nature and the out of doors. I can put more miles on my bike. I can try to distill wisdom from what I've learned and experienced. I can become better acquainted with myself. I can con begin to concentrate on living each moment of each day more fully. Finally, 
I can pursue my ongoing personal spiritual journey. In this regard, I continue to be filled with awe at the beauty and wonder of our world. I choose to believe that a positive force was behind the Big Bang that fashioned our Earth and the cosmos. I see the influence of this life force everywhere I look. However, though I subscribe to the tenets of the golden rule on humanism, I'm disillusioned with most human-invented, organized religions. It's my belief that since the advent of humankind, there has been more blood shed in the name of my religion is better than your religion than for any other reason. If I had to attach a label to myself, it would probably be agnostic pantheist. I'm still like the four-year-old boy I once was when told by, by my dear father that God created the heavens and the earth. I inquired, who gave him the idea? I'm continuing to search for an answer to that question, even though I can never know what it is. In the meantime, I've found it that it's much more satisfying and enjoyable in my enjoyable to live my life as an optimist than as a pessimist. And so I have passed these last 20 plus years with all of the foregoing as my focus. In the process, I've continued to learn learn from many others and to develop new insights into my own. The following is a list. The following list is a distillation of some of those thoughts and concepts that have guided me in my daily life. Even though I don't come close to living up to these guidelines, I found the list to be helpful to me as a personal set of aspirations. And there follows a list of, four, of 30 uh, some of those uh, things that I am learning. This is wonderful, but well, I want to play a little game. Okay. I want to. I've picked out a handful of these from the list. The list is thirty, and I want to. I'll read the piece that I've picked out, and would you expand on it uh, briefly? We'll do a few of these. Number three: We are all part of each other and of all other living things. Well, it's taken me a long time to evolve to really believe that, but I do believe that. I mean, I think, you know, as human beings, uh, we, we really, um, we, we share something in common, and life is just so much more real and meaningful if, if we stick to that concept of, of being part of each other and all living things. I think particularly in this day and age, the all living things is pretty important because we're all too often paying uh, too little attention to what's happening in this wonderful earth that we live on. And I think that we need to um, uh, have our very growing con uh, respect for uh, nature and for uh, this marvelous earth that we live on. Mm, beautiful. How about number 12? Use your creativity and talents to make a difference. Well, that's pretty obvious. Uh, I think all of us are gifted one way or another. And uh, I suppose I should put in there to make a positive mm. difference. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, and each of us in our own way, we have a gift that we can give and that uh, that if we can combine it with an inquiring mind and with a sense of creativity, it's going to make a difference in the world. Here's one of my favorites, Bud, and it, it really, uh, to me, 
exemplifies one of the things I most admire and respect about you. Now, you've already shared with our audience you're in your 80s, and I know from personal experience that you are as hardworking, if not harder, as focused, as devoted to excellence as anyone I've come across in his or her 30s or 40s or 50s. And so this one's perfect. It's number 15, and it says, the mind like steel is kept bright through use. Well, I want to say thank you to my father for that because I had that instilled in me uh, at a very early age. I had an incredibly wonderful father. I always wondered why he wasn't president of the United States. But uh, he, uh, at the very beginning of, of this book, I talk about uh, the, says, my twig grew from Midwestern soil and was bent by loving parents with Midwestern values. These values, for the most part, have stood me in good stead. Uh, and here's that list. Get a good education. Work hard and you'll get ahead. Think of others. Whatever you do, do, the, do to the, the best of your ability. Make something beautiful of it. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And then here, the mind like steel is kept bright through use. That was mm. my father. Mm. Be frugal. Rub every nickel twice before you spend it. I was born in 1933, the year in the last century when fewer children were born in, than in any other year. And it was the depth of the depression. So be frugal. Rub every nickel twice before you spend it. And I still have a bit of that habit. Eat your Brussels sprouts. Vegetables are good for you. Drink lots of milk. Take your ABDG vitamins every day. Clean your plate. There are children starving in India. Keep your room tidy. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but word can, words can never help you. Roosevelt, with his New Deal, is ruining the country, and don't think dirty thoughts. Uh, and so that one, the mind, like steel, is kept right through use, has been with me all my life. Yeah, it, it's apparent. I love it. How about this one, number 22? It's a variation on one we've already covered. It's be awestruck by the extraordinary beauty and diversity of nature and do your bit to preserve the planet. Well, that's self-explanatory. Uh, mm. And, and I, I, did, I spent uh, some years on the board of the Colorado Nature Conservancy. I was also Colorado's representative to the National Trustee Council of the Nature Conservancy. And I've just thought that as human beings, if we have no other responsibility, it's, it's to uh, do our bit to uh, preserve uh, the planet. And that's especially important in this day and age when uh, this, this concept of global warming is real. And we as human beings, every single one of us, we really need to to do our uh, bit to preserve the beauty and diversity of nature and to preserve the planet. Absolutely. There are three more I want to share. So this one is number 26. Have many friends and especially many young friends. Well, that's so important. You know, we, we live in this concept where you get to a certain age and you go to a retirement community mm. and you're surrounded by only your contemporaries. And I've just found that it's so important 
to reach beyond that, to reach into uh, the ranks of, of younger friends, because they have so much to contribute, and there are probably things that we have to contribute to them. It's just a lot more, a lot more fun. So Charlotte and I have tried very, very hard to have a lot of fr uh, young friends, and we're fortunate enough to have three children, two girls and a boy, and six, uh, actually eight grandchildren, uh, uh, two step-grandchildren and, and, uh, and um, six grandchildren, and they're half and half, half boys, half girls. And we're fortunate to have these young people uh, with us. But it, I, I encourage every, all of you who may be listening and, and be contemporaries and are contemporaries of mine to continue to reach out to have younger friends. And vice versa, and you know, it's actually a theme that I discussed in Why on Earth, this, the, the utter importance of intergenerational knowledge and wisdom transfer, especially right now in these times. So uh, thanks for that one, bud. Now how about this one, number 27, forgiving others is the key to healing oneself. It's taken me a while to, to, to get to really understand that, but, but, um, it, it seems to me that that we should all learn, or at least I speak for myself, that just to let it go, to forgive others. I mean, we all feel that we're wronged one way or another from time to time, but if, if we can all just learn to kind of let that go, and it's uh, by so doing, you're healing, you're, you're healing yourself by not harboring these these uh, revenge thoughts against people who, who may, who you may feel have wronged you, but uh, it's a lot, lot better to live life that way. Mm, perhaps that allows for more laughter. Yeah. Now the final, and it's interesting how these final few really track the arc of the final few chapters of Why on Earth. I, I'm struck by this, but this uh, number twenty nine, love is the very essence of life. That's just so self-explanatory. I mean, I just have, uh, I, I've come to understand that without love, uh, life is hardly worth living. With love, it, it, it's very much worth living. And the, the 30th one is, is dying is no big deal if you've lived your human life uh, fully. And uh, I don't know you in the audience, what your concept of death is. Mine is uh, sort of tantamount to going to sleep, having a dream, and then maybe it keeps going, maybe it doesn't. But uh, if, if you've lived your human life uh, fully, I don't think one has much to fear with death. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. But I'm struck that, uh, and I want to ask you in a minute about this wonderful phrase agnostic pantheist but let's hold that thought i'm struck by one of the things you mentioned here in in the prose leading up to the list about the bloodshed in the name of religion and i'm struck that many of my friends and colleagues are ours our friends and colleagues will see capitalism or a version of capitalism that is about the rampant uh, self-interest, often to the detriment of the community or the environment, 
And, and many folks would say that is actually a form of religion. Some would say it's perhaps the fastest growing religion on the planet. Um, and I'm, I'm so struck, Bud, that your leadership as an educator, as a director, as an executive, as a friend and colleague has been instrumental in bringing forth an idea that is conscious capitalism. And to me, there's such a rich opportunity and important, a vital uh, necessity in understanding uh, this particular approach to business, to participating in the market. And, and, and I'm hoping you can share with us what is conscious capitalism? Why is it important right now? Well, I, I uh, am glad you asked that question because I, I, I think deeply about that. Um, let me, at the outset, state that I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the positive potential of capitalism. I think it's been uh, an incredibly positive force uh, in the last couple hundred years, certainly here in, in the United States, in bringing out the creativity of of, of people. But I think we're at a time when uh, some things have gotten out of kilter a bit. I spent 23 years on the board of directors of Whole Foods Market, and John Mackey, the founder and still CEO of Whole Foods, and someone named Raj Sisodia, who happens to be the Whole Foods uh, endowed professor uh, at uh, Babson College, where I previously was president, uh, developed this concept of conscious capitalism. And uh, it can be explained very simply. There are three tenets. Uh, in the United States, in the past, the legal concept of a publicly owned uh, corporation has been that the the greatest responsibility, the only responsibility legally of uh, the management and boards of those country companies has been to maximize shareholder profit. And uh, this has led to some unfortunate uh, uh, practices in, in the field of capitalism. Conscious capitalism, by contrast, posits that the only responsibility of management is to is to uh, be driven by their purpose and their mission. In the case of Whole Foods Market, that purpose and mission was to sell the highest quality, natural, organic, delicious, healthy foods possible and help change the way people eat for the better and help change the way agriculture is practiced. The better. So pillar number one is to be driven, a company should be driven primarily by their purpose and their mission, not by profit, not necessarily by profit uh, maximization. I'll say a word about profits later. Secondly, pillar is that these organizations should be led by what I call servant leaders, whose job it is to create a culture that's going to bring out the best in everybody associated with the enterprise, not the command and control, I'm the smartest guy in the world, do it my way type of leadership. The third and most important tenet is that companies should be focused on optimizing 
the returns to all their stakeholders, not just one stakeholder, their investors. And by when I talk about their stakeholders, at, in the case of Whole Foods, uh, number one was the customer as a stakeholder. Number two, the team member or, or employees as stakeholders. Number, number three, partners in the supply chain. In the case of Whole Foods, that meant um, the farmers and the middlemen in the process um, of uh, producing the food that they sold. Uh, number four, investors. Yes, they're important, but it's the whole idea is to optimize the return. Number five, uh, as a stakeholder, are the communities in which the, these companies uh, operate, uh, and with a thoughtful consideration of making sure there are positive returns to that uh, to to those uh, communities. And number six is the environment that uh, corporations should follow environmentally responsible approaches in, in, uh, and, and do their, their best in that regard. In the case of Whole Foods, uh, they have uh, three, um, uh, they, 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 they had three not-for-profit uh, endeavors. Uh, the first one is the Whole People Foundation where Whole Foods is now doing uh, lending in some 65 countries, uh, mainly 90% to women. Initially, it was in uh, partnership with Mohammed Yunus, uh, who, uh, who developed the, the concept of this type of lending. And they have a whole cities foundation where they're developing developing stores in in areas like Detroit and New Orleans and Newark and Chicago uh, in in parts of town that they can be very helpful to develop and then they have the whole kids foundation where they're sponsoring um, gardens and so forth in schools across uh, across the nation in any case uh, that's the concept of conscious capitalism you could call it uh, uh, by many other names, but conscious capitalism is the one that uh, that uh, was developed by uh, John Mackey and Raj Sisodia, and you could certainly learn more about that. There's a conscious capitalism uh, uh, foundation right now, and uh, movement, and uh, any human audience who's interested, you can uh, you can Google it. Thank you, Bud. That's so important, and uh, we'll make sure to include some of that uh, information in the show notes for everybody. Okay, I, I wanted to come back to agnostic pantheist. What is it? What does that mean? Well, it's that uh, I tried to explain. I, I think there's a positive force out there, but I think we humans have, uh, and for me personally, uh, my journey. I had one grandfather who was a Methodist minister in Wisconsin and Minnesota, and he'd been born in German Germany, and he gave sermons uh, in both uh, in, in both uh, German and in English every Sunday, and I was catechized as a uh, Methodist at an early age, and then 
when I got into middle school, the Presbyterians had a better basketball team for the kids, so I became Presbyterian <laughs> for a while. And I was married in the um, Episcopal uh, Church and um, was, uh, you know, introduced uh, to, to organized religion. But as I, time has gone on, I've just been so concerned about the fact that throughout the world that uh, there have been all these religious wars, really more religious wars than anything else. And once you try to organize religion and say that's the only true thing that people can believe in, if you don't believe we, the way we believe, then we're going to kill you, uh, that that's the world we're living in right now. And so I've, I've sort of said a pox on all organized religion. Yet, I, as I said earlier, I believe in a very strong positive force that is driving all of life. And I see, I see this, this positive force every place, particularly when I look in, in, in nature. And um, so when I, and, and that's the pantheist side of it. Uh, but uh, I'm agnostic about whether there is uh, God. Uh, I'd like to think there's a positive life force uh, at work, but I just, for the moment in my life, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think that term agnostic, I don't know what the answer is, but I choose to see beauty and love uh, everywhere I look. Uh, around me as I go through life, and I don't feel I need to have the organized uh, religions with all of their uh, dogma and um, and uh, that, that that exists. Now, don't get me wrong. I think many religions do very good things, <laughs> and uh, the the spirit that they that they follow, uh, which is uh, you know, really based on the golden rule, if they really follow that, that uh, then I, I totally applaud what they're doing. But for me personally, I've tried to explain what my beliefs are. Thank you for sharing that with us, Bud. And uh, yeah, that, that term agnostic, not knowing, uh, pantheism, finding the deity or divine in all things, it reminds me of the deism of, of Thomas Jefferson and others of the founding fathers of this nation. And, uh, you know, I'm struck that uh, you pulled from another great mind in, the, in uh, the introductory quote of the entire book, one of my most favorite authors, Herman Hesse. Uh, many of my friends know I'm a bit of a, of a student of Hesse's work and Golly, you picked this fabulous quote from his novel, Damien. And Bud, I was, I was hoping you might read it for us. Sure. It's from Damien, Herman Hess. Every man is more than just himself. He also represents the unique, the very special, and always significant and remarkable point at which the world's phenomena intersect only once in this way and never again. That is why every man's story is important, eternal, sacred. That is why every man, as long as he lives 
and fulfills the will of nature is wondrous and worthy of every consideration. I would say, add to that in this era in which we live, every woman, as long as she lives and fulfills the will of nature, is wondrous and worthy of every consideration. Beautiful, Bud, thank you. And a final question for you. What, what, do, what do you think this means to fulfill the will of nature for us as individuals? Gosh, that's, a, that's, a, that's provocative. Well, I, I hope that in the course of this conversation I've, I've tried to explain what I, what I believe in that, in that regard. I, uh, that I, I think we all, to the extent that we can, we should live uh, a joyful kind of life, a giving kind of a life, a uh, generous kind of a life, and a loving kind of a life. Thank you so much, Bud. Well, it is such a pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you today and to share our conversation with, with our audience. And uh, before signing off, I just want to invite you, is there, is there anything else you'd like to say or mention uh, before we conclude our discussion? Well, I think the only thing I'd like to do is to thank you, Aaron, for getting this Why on Earth uh, movement, I suppose, or concept uh, for de developing it and, and trying to spread spread it because I think that uh, they can have a lot of uh, do a lot of positive good for the world and for a lot of people. Uh, so I, I applaud that and I, I just want to thank you and thank you for inviting me today to have this conversation. Well, thank you, Bud. Thank you for joining me and us, and thanks for being such a wonderful friend. Okay, cool. Thanks. Feeling is mutual. <laughs> bye bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.